Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Previously on Truth and Justice. Detectives Royster and Davidson visited the only apartment complex in the neighborhood. A week later, they returned to find Troy Eldridge, Jesse's brother. Troy stated that he lived there with his brother Jesse. Troy told Royster that he had no knowledge of the offense and that they would have to return later if they wanted to speak with his brother. Detective Royster and his, I think his partner come also, but they come to see me in the county jail to interview me concerning the murder. Royster's report reads as follows. Mr. Eldridge, at a later date, was eliminated as a possible suspect in the case. Troy told Royster that he had no knowledge of the The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and in today's episode, we will finally be answering the question, how did Jesse Eldridge get convicted for the murder of Kiao Gove? This story is full of twists and turns, with tragedy around every corner. In order to unpack Jesse's story, and for you to really understand how this happened, we have to start from the beginning. On a cold December day in 1963, in the town of Troy, Michigan, Jesse Eldred was born to his parents, Carol and Jay. Troy is a suburb of Detroit, located just north of the city in Oakland County. At the time, Jesse had an older sister named Christine, and a year later, another sibling was born, Tanya. We don't actually know a whole lot about Jesse's first few years of life, but from the stories I've heard, they were rough. All we really know is that from 1963 to 1968, the Eldridges had a life in Michigan. And at the young age of five years old, life broke bad for Jesse. You know, me and Tanya were so young, four and five, that we want to listen. You know, we're kids, children, and they just couldn't do it. So, and, uh, so she, uh, Carol and Jay, my parents, went ahead and dropped me and Tanya off and crashed in an eight mile and, uh, and, you know, it was a block from my grandmother's house, and they did have the common courtesy to call. Carol did call her mother, and uh, her mother called parents who adopted me and Tanya. But, uh, you know, on, on the way, I guess on the way down to Texas and everything, uh, Carol had a child in Chicago, Deborah Ann, and uh, they say she, the baby died in 
during birth or right after birth. That's a story that we that we were told. So, when she left you, did they just Go leave ahead. you on the side of the road? Well, yeah, the corner gra- grass at an eight mile. Yeah, they we were a block away from uh, her mother's house. But yeah, they just basically put us out there. They called Carol's mother, called her, and told her, "Hey, we're leaving Tanya and Jesse right here." And uh, Carol's mother, Faye, she uh, she called John and Judy Perry, who eventually adopted me and Tanya. And uh, they're the ones that raised us. You know, we always knew they were they were that's Carol's first cousin. We know, you know, we knew who our parents were all all the years. And, you know, the family stories, you know, they tried to say, you know, John and Judy stole us from them or whatever. But, you know, even before my grandmother died, she, you know, she said, yeah, <laughs> your Jay and Carol left you sitting on 8 Mile, and uh, I had to call Judy to come pick you all up, you know. So. You heard that you know. right. Jesse, at five years old, was left on the side of 8 Mile Road with his four-year-old sister while they watched their parents drive away with their older sister, Christine, still in the car. At Jesse's trial, Carol testified that she had to leave Jesse and Tanya for financial reasons. She didn't really have a response as to why she left them and kept Christine, but that's exactly what she did. Jesse and Tanya stood on the side of 8 Mile Road until their cousin, Judy Perry, picked them up. Carol and Jay made their way down to Dallas with Christine. They started a new life. One child deceased and two abandoned. John and Judy Perry eventually adopted Jesse and Tanya. At the age of five, Jesse Eldridge became Jesse Perry. Years would go by before he would see his biological parents again. Throughout the next 10 years of Jesse's life, he would occasionally see Carol and Jay at family functions. They would make the journey from Texas to Michigan for funerals and weddings. As the years went by, the Eldridge clan kept growing. Jay and Carol had three more boys after their move to Texas. Jay Bryan, Daryl Wayne, and Troy. Jesse and Tanya always knew who their real parents were. And every time Jesse watches mom and dad load his biological family into the family car and drive away, it was a painful reminder of that cold day when his parents threw him away. Jesse lived a pretty typical childhood on the exterior. He went to school, had friends, good parents who loved him, and was no stranger to mischief. But on the inside, he never let go of what could have been or what should have been. No matter how good Jesse's life was, he could never stop thinking about the fact that his real parents were living their lives and parenting four of his siblings. And yet for some reason, they didn't want him. At the age of 15, Jesse ran away from home. He hopped on a bus and headed to Texas to live with his quote, real family. He was bursting at the seams with excitement to begin his new life. But it didn't take long before his fantasy of a normal life with his biological family dissolved before his eyes. Funding for today's episode comes from The Great Courses Plus. 
Now, more than ever, it's so important to stay informed and learn as much as possible about the world around us. As I've grown older and become more enlightened, I realize that knowledge isn't always about a piece of paper. College degrees certainly have their place, but what's become more important to me is actually learning something, not walking away with a degree. And that's exactly what I'm doing through my subscription with The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is on-demand access to really engaging video lectures presented by award-winning experts. And Mike and I have both been checking them out in our free time, and we're already learning a lot. With The Great Courses Plus, I can learn more about anything I want. History, law, psychology, even how to take better pictures. The Great Courses Plus has over 8,000 lectures, and new ones are added all the time. You can stream these lectures whenever you want from your smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV. You can start, stop, or pick up where you left off from any device. So Mike and I have been watching a bunch of the videos in the Forensic Histories, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals category. And I think that a lot of these will be right up your alley. For example, last week we watched these three lectures. Crooked Cops and Bad Convictions, The Truth Behind False Confessions, and Decomposition and Confusing Interpretations. We're learning things with our subscription that we're actually applying to the work that we're doing. And since all of you are helping us with this investigation, I would really encourage you to check out the Forensic History category. The Forensics History course illustrates how our justice system can go awry at times and how to use forensic science to unravel the mysteries of criminal cases. The course covers everything from Jack the Ripper to the mysterious death of Kung Fu legend Bruce Lee to deciphering copycats and hoaxes. And as one of my listeners, you'll get a free month of access to The Great Courses Plus. Just sign up through my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash truth. So start your free month today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash truth. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash truth. Because you said you were about 15 when you went back, when you moved to Dallas. Yeah, that was good. 15 when I come to Dallas to meet him and um, me and Jay because at the time Jay was drinking and at that time he was beating up Carol all the time and you know he beat her up until he uh, until he found out she had MS and then he stopped beating her up but uh, him and I couldn't get along so like a month and a half later I moved in with a friend of Carol's uh, older older woman friend of Carol's and uh her and I ended up sleeping together, and we ended up having on and off relationship for the next eight to ten years or so. Was that um, is it Glenda? Was that her name? No, no, that was Susan. Uh, Susan. Okay. She, uh, she has yeah. She has my two oldest girls, and I was fifteen, and you know, the look, you know, the seventies and the early eighties were not like they are today. Nobody was nobody went down to report Susan sleeping with a fifteen year old and. For the most part, right. you, you wouldn't know I you wouldn't know I was fifteen first meeting me. You knew I was young, but you didn't know I was that young. But I couldn't get along with Jay and Carol. So you only lived with them for a month and a half. Yeah, about a month and a half. June, July. Yeah, about a month. I don't even think it was a full month and a half. I don't even think it was that long. I just couldn't do it. You know, I, I never liked people telling me what to do. Not even my parents. You know, what I mean. My mom in Michigan and everything, they raised me. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like I wouldn't listen. It, it was like, <sighs> I'd done what I could 
to get along, but if I wanted to do something, I was going to do it come hell or high water and then accept whatever punishment or whatever problems came with that, whether it was staying out past my uh, curfew or or uh, never doing homework in school, you know, uh, you couldn't you couldn't tell me to do it because I'd sit there, I'd look at the book for three hours but still not do nothing. Eventually they realized I'm not going to do it if I didn't want to do it. Right. Did you leave uh, your parents in Michigan? Did you leave there on bad terms? No, I, uh, I did not leave on bad terms except for the last time I was in Michigan, like I told you, I got hooked on drugs and I left on not real bad terms, but my mom was very disappointed in me, and my grandfather was also. But, you know, they when I went to prison that first time, we worked a whole lot of my uh, problems out. And then and it was it was me. It was me. And I'm not going to blame the dope or the drinking because I made that choice. But all the, all the wrong choices were, uh, were my fault. Matter of fact, when this murder case, when they arrested me for this murder case, my mother uh, did make a a video that was supposed to be sent down here, and uh, they uh, they interviewed a whole lot of people that knew me from counselors in high school. I mean, junior high school and everything to regular people that knew me. And my mom went a whole long ways to uh, to try to help me through this. And, uh, You know, Mr. Ruff, I'm a lot of I'm a lot of things. I'm a lot of bad things. I've done a lot of bad things. I'm not claiming to be that I was an angel. I'm telling you, I didn't get up one Thursday morning and go out and murder some woman and then go about life as usual. But uh, I've never let nobody. I've never let nobody. If I'd done it out there. Whether it was stealing a car or burglarizing a building or, or robbing somebody, I never let nobody else take the fall for me, uh, get arrested or blamed for nothing I do, you know. And contrary to popular belief, my mother and my mom, she, <laughs> boy, she knew more about me than I thought she knew about me. <laughs> you're, you're talking about Carol or your mom? No, my my real my adopted mother. Okay. Carol, Carol always lived in a fantasy world. She blamed everybody else. She blamed she blamed everybody for everything. And then after she got MS, it was all about feel sorry for me thing. And you know, I'm just uh, I I just kind of feel sorry for her because you know you got you got. Ten different people telling me the same thing that they left you beside the beside the road, you know, and you're the only one saying you didn't, you know that that kind of you know it's kind of odd when you're when her own mother, my my grandma, her her mother told me to my face, you know, yes, Jesse, they they left you, <laughs> they left you and your sister, and uh, hey, but I really think me coming down here to meet them. I wanted to meet him, and, you know, I really I wanted to meet him. Typical, you know, I want to see if I can be accepted by my real family or why I was a piece of trash and got thrown out, I guess. I don't guess that's the truth. Did, I um, wanted to figure out if I was... Go ahead. 
I was gonna. I know you said uh, Tanya still lives up here. She's a firefighter, right? Yes, uh, she's a she's a captain in the Troy Fire Department right now. Jesse's stay in Dallas with his biological family lasted less than six weeks. When it became apparent that he could not get along with his father, Carol kicked him out and arranged for him to move in with her friend Susan. Shortly thereafter, Jesse and Susan began an affair, and shortly after that. At the young age of 15, Jesse, a child himself, was going to be a father. It was around this time when Jesse really began to fall apart. He turned to drugs and alcohol to cope. By the age of 16, Jesse was an alcoholic. Smoking an occasional joint turned into a severe methamphetamine addiction. And in his own words, Jesse was a mess. The need for drugs and alcohol and the effects of using had the exact result on Jesse's life that you would expect. When he was high or drunk, he would get into fistfights. And when he wasn't high or drunk, he would steal from people to fund the procurement of more drugs and alcohol. A life like this can only lead you to one place. Prison. And that's exactly where Jesse ended up at 18 years old. Probation for burglary of a building. Then while on probation, I ended up stabbing a guy and uh, fighting with police officer. And then ended up doing seven years got two seven-year sentences sent to TDC. Okay. Now, how old were you when that happened? 18. Just turned 19, yes. Okay. Now, what, 19. what were the circumstances there? What happened is, that led you to stabbing this guy? I was at a bar, on, I guess, uh, underage, drinking at a bar. Um, but Thanksgiving night, I went to a bar, and I broke up a fight, and I ended up stabbing one guy. And uh, I waited around, and police showed up, and then uh, they, wanted, they arrested me, and then me and police officer got in a fight. Before it was all over, I ended up with seven years going to prison. Um, I've always been treated treated older than I than my age, but once they find out my age, then they, well, shoot, it's too late to uh, say anything about it now. So the The altercation started with you trying to break up a fight? Yes, sir. It was in a fight in a bar, and I knew the one guy, and I tried to break it up. And when the other guy pulled the knife, I took the knife away from him, and I stabbed him with it. Okay, so you stabbed him with his own knife? Yes, sir. Um, obviously, you did seven years. You It wasn't a fatal stabbing? No, sir. No, it wasn't a fatal stabbing. It was, it was It's considered aggravated assault. And, uh, you know, of course, he pressed charges. You know, she had to, and and the me getting into it with the police officer and I was still on probation for a burglary of the building and I went to court a couple months later and uh, agreed to sign for uh, two seven year sentences run CC I'd done two and a half years in prison and uh, got out where exactly did you stab him? in all honesty I don't remember because I was I was extremely drunk and uh, extremely intoxicated I was out of it I mean to this day I don't know Okay, I, well, I said obviously not anywhere too bad because the guy lived through it. Oh, yeah, he lived through it. I mean, he was, he was really fine that night other than, you know, they just took him to the hospital that night, I know, and uh, he was out the next day, so. Now, have you had, so that was when you were 18, you ended up only doing two and a half years for that? Yes, sir. Jesse was released from prison on April 19, 1985. He was 21 years old upon his release. He walked out of prison with the best intentions. He wanted to be the father to his daughters and settle down with Susan. 
but it didn't take long before Jesse was right back to his old routine. Drugs and alcohol accompanied by burglary to fund his addictions. He wasn't out of prison very long before he had another inevitable run-in with the law. He had learned a little bit in prison. He learned to eliminate the middleman. Jesse had figured out a way to take the innocent out of the equation. I ended up moving back in with Susan and she had my two oldest girls and I mean, we were we were making the family unit. I was working, you know, working hunt products. I, you know, I was trying to take care, do, uh, doing the right thing. And once again, I veered off, and, and I can't blame the drinking and the drugs. That that would be a cop out. I ended up separating from Susan, got married, and then me and my wife, uh, I messed that up. I got it got hooked on cocaine and methamphetamines and then I went out and I was drinking drugs and I started out robbing uh, during 85, 86 all those years in Dallas people would deal methamphetamines and cocaine out of their houses and stuff and I would get introduced to them make one buy and then I'd come by days later or something and uh, I'd rob them and uh, I ended up robbing two guys that I'd seen come out of a, the wrong apartment, and they were the wrong guys. And uh, that's what sent me back to prison again for four and a half years. Well, four, yeah, four and a half, a little under four and a half. Jesse years. stayed in prison until February of 1991. He was released five months before Kiao's murder. This time, Jesse had come out with a determination to turn his life around. He would drink, but the drugs were a thing of the past for him. He got a job, he started running for exercise, and he began a relationship with a woman named Tammy Autry. Rather than hurting people, Jesse was determined to be known as a man who helped others. I was 28. I was in the best shape of my entire life. I thought I was, I don't know, I thought I was some kind of, some. I don't know what I thought I was. I really don't. But I know... Everything I was doing, from working on a car engine to to sanding the floor of a building I was working on to sweeping a floor, I'd done it with 100% of everything I was going to do. I would stop. I would pull over to help somebody change. I'd see somebody beside the road, and I would stop to help change their tire. You know, that's I, I met some fantastic people that way. And I wouldn't accept no money from him. I, I, hey, I don't want your money, man. Just, uh, I'm just helping you. Let me help you. And uh, you meet a lot of good people. My entire deal was I would, thought everything was great. As far as Jesse was concerned, life was looking up. While his biological parents still didn't want anything to do with him, he and his younger brother Troy had really formed a brotherly bond. In fact, Jesse and Troy had moved into an apartment together. Troy was dating and living with a woman named Shauna Couples. In that summer, Tammy had also moved into the apartment with Jesse. It was a simple life, but it was a life that Jesse was happy with. He finally had a relationship with his brother, and things were going well with Tammy. By the summer of 1991, Tammy was pregnant. Given Jesse's extensive time spent in prison, he really had no relationship with his oldest children, and he wasn't about to let that happen with this child. Jesse was going to have that family unit that he had craved ever since that day he watched his parents drive away from him and Tanya when he was five years old. He finally had a routine. 
a healthy routine. He would get up early every morning and walk across the street to the Circle K to buy a cup of coffee and a newspaper. Most of his mornings were spent drinking his coffee and reading the paper while Tammy, Troy, and Shauna were still sleeping. Jesse finally had a normal life. Now moving forward, things are going to get a bit confusing. In order to maintain some order to this story, I'm going to tell you two different versions. The first version of the story has been the narrative for the last 25 years. This is what Jesse believed happened, and everyone else for that matter. Kiel Gove was killed on July 25, 1991. According to Jesse, the night before the murder, he went to a party at the apartment complex with Tammy, Troy, and Shauna. He says they stayed up drinking until 2 or 3 a.m. This fact appears to be undisputed by everyone involved. Now remember, Tammy was pregnant at this time. Jesse says that Tammy woke him up around 7.30 or 8 in the morning and asked him to get her a Dr. Pepper. Jesse says he got dressed and walked across the street to the Circle K. He got himself a newspaper and a cup of coffee and got Tammy her Dr. Pepper. He returned to the apartment within a few minutes. Jesse tells me that he doesn't remember exactly when Troy and Shauna emerged from their bedroom. Everyone was tired and hungover, so they basically laid around the house all day. As far as he was concerned, the day was uneventful. They didn't have any idea that the murder had occurred on the other side of the high school until the next morning. On Friday morning, per his usual routine, Jesse walked to the Circle K for his coffee and newspaper. He read about the murder that morning. Truth and Justice listener Fatima Rivera was able to track down a copy of that article from the Dallas Morning News. The article from Friday's paper was titled, Woman Slaying Shocks Husband Puzzles Detectives, and it read as follows. Kiao Gove often told her friends and relatives that if anyone ever tried to hurt her, she would scream at the top of her lungs to protect herself. On Thursday morning, that strategy failed this 53-year-old Dallas woman. Mrs. Gove was found about 7.20 a.m. lying near a walking track on the grounds of Grady Spruce High School in Pleasant Grove. She had been stabbed numerous times in her chest and back, police said. She was pronounced dead about an hour later at a nearby hospital. Her husband, Kenneth Gove, said Thursday that he had not yet felt the full shock of what had happened. Quote, It was such a wasteful thing that I would like to get on top of a water tower and scream at the top of my lungs, but I can't do that. End quote. Mr. and Mrs. Gove married 19 years ago after meeting in Taiwan where he was working for the State Department, he said. The couple had one son, who is now 18 and is planning to attend Texas A&M in the fall. Mr. Gove said that his wife liked to keep fit by walking and by working out on an exercise machine at home. Walking at Spruce was a morning ritual for her, he said. Quote, It always used to be considered a relatively safe area. End quote. Mrs. Gove was found by a neighbor about 10 feet from the walking track, said Dallas homicide detective John Davidson. Quote, A man had let his dog out, and the dog was acting up quite a bit, the detective said, so he went out to check it out and found her. Police believe that Mrs. Gove was attacked shortly before she was found. They found no weapon. Mrs. Gove was pronounced dead at Southeastern Methodist Hospital at 8.34 a.m. Mr. Gove said he left for work about 6 a.m. Thursday, and learned of his wife's slaying when police notified him there. Police on Thursday knew of no motive in the killing and had no suspects. Detective Davidson said an anonymous caller reported hearing a woman scream shortly before Mrs. Gove was found. 
Mrs. Gove was a pastry chef at Spruce High School and was also a licensed cosmetologist, her husband said. She loved to sew and work in her garden, and she also enjoyed fishing. Her death is a tragic waste, he said, because she had so many years left for herself and others. Anyone with information on the slang may call the Dallas Police Department. An interesting find in this article is the note about an anonymous caller reporting a woman screaming that morning. This report isn't mentioned anywhere in Royster's notes. After reading the article, Jesse recalled that he had seen Kiao walking around the school before. Do you remember that morning when you were going to get the Dr. Pepper uh, in the newspaper? Do you recall seeing any any emergency vehicles, hearing sirens, seeing lights, anything like that that morning? Nothing like that. I, I, you know, nothing, zero. That's no, nothing like that. And do, do you know, you know, we probably don't know exactly what time you got up, if it was 7 or 8 or just somewhere no, around it, there. It was, it, was, it was somewhere between seven, 7 and 8 because that was just, you know, Tammy was pregnant at the time and everything. And she had a, you know, Dr. Pepper scene every morning. That was every morning thing with her. And, oh, you know, I would go get it. I had no problem doing it. We didn't have it in the refrigerator or one got it. Were you hanging around Tammy most of that day, do you think? Yes, we, yes, we were, yeah. Well, all the time Tammy and I were together outside of me going to work or me doing pulling some stunt, going, going to do something, Tammy and I spent many, many hours of every day together. Going back to think it over, you know, even outside of this, this episode, you know, yeah, we spent an inordinate amount of time together, yeah. Um, do you recall if or when uh, Troy and Shauna got up, if they were around, or do you not remember? I don't remember. That's, you know, I really don't. Okay. Did you know the victim here, Miss Gove? No, I never knew Miss Cal Gove. Do you recall ever seeing her running around the neighborhood or anything, or yeah. walking? Well, yes, we. I did see her, and I, I do remember seeing her in the neighborhood because Troy and I would stay be out on the balcony listening to the stereo drinking and uh we would see her because she was like one of the only uh asian women around and she would always be wearing these funny outfits different outfits i mean she was getting later after when i got arrested for this found out she made her own clothes a lot and that's why they stood out you know tiger striped outfits and stuff like that you know i mean it just and it wasn't something you see in that neighborhood that wasn't you know, the normal look in that neighborhood. Right. Uh, did you, when you saw her walking, was she usually alone or was she with anyone or either or? Well, I, I never really paid attention. Uh, I do remember her seeing her with her husband one time, but I'd only seen her, you know, maybe four or five times. That would, you know. Okay. Like I said, it, it was because her outfit stood out. It's, you know. Uh, me sitting here saying, oh, well, I've never seen her. Well, that's that's crap because I did. You know, me and Troy actually discussed it because we went, she'd be wearing some funny clothes, you know. Right, uh, right. Did you guys, did you know, uh, did you know where she lived? No, sir. Never knew where she lived. About okay. a week after Kiao's death, detectives Royster and Davidson visited Troy and Jesse's apartment to ask about the murder. Jesse wasn't home, but Troy spoke with the detectives. Troy told them that he didn't know anything about the murder. Later, Royster talked to Jesse and ruled him out as a suspect. Now let's fast forward three and a half years to 1994. This is where things get complicated. 
In October of 1994, Jesse and Troy were at a party. Jesse and Tammy had split up, and Jesse had fallen back into his meth addiction. Me and my ex- ex-girlfriend, Lou Dixon, we were, Glenda Dixon, we were breaking up, basically. And I was out there living with Troy out there in Balk Springs. And one night, we had a, it was like a little get-together at Troy's, uh, at the apartment there with Troy. And Troy got drunk and went, passed out, went to bed, whatever. And party broke up. Well, Shauna was over there. And Shauna and I ended up getting in her car and driving over to Oak Cliff and picking up some uh, dope. And then we drove back and we went to her apartment and then we uh, ended up going to bed together. And about uh, six or seven o'clock in the morning, she left. I didn't know where she was going. And then about 30 minutes later, Troy come, come running through her, running through the front door hollering and screaming at me that I had uh, I, I had Shauna, I had slept with Shauna, I had slept with Shauna and uh, I got dressed and I left and as I was leaving about three or four Balk Springs police cars passed me I went to a telephone and uh, I went and called Glenda and I told her, look there might be a whole lot of problems I don't know what's going on and as I was talking to her Box Springs police surrounded me, and a lieutenant, one of the, a lieutenant that knew me, he said uh, he had received a phone call that I had beat up, robbed, and raped Shauna Couples, and then beat up Troy. And uh, he said, "Well, nobody was beat up, nobody was robbed, nobody was raped, but he could smell the uh, smell the alcohol, methamphetamines on me, and he was taking me in for uh, eight-hour detox." So they took me took me to the Balk Springs Police Station, detox, and then uh, I called up a friend of mine, Tony Novak, to come and pick me up. But while I was in uh, in the uh, detox, Shauna Couples and her mother pointed out to the police that no, Shauna hadn't been raped, Shauna hadn't been robbed, and Troy wasn't beat up, which you know they knew already. And so they you know they released me eight hours later. And then uh, approximately a week after that incident, I was going to report to my parole officer, and that's when the Dallas Police Department pulled me over on uh, Interstate 20 on the other side of Oak Cliff, and they arrested me for Mrs. Coe's murder. The incident when Jesse and Shauna slept together occurred on October 20th. The next day, the same day that Troy called the police and accused Jesse of raping and beating Shauna and assaulting him as well, Troy went to visit Detective Don Watts with Dallas PD's Cold Case Division. It was in this meeting that Troy swore out this affidavit. I am giving this statement to D.A. Watts, who has identified himself as a Dallas police officer. In the other statement that I gave Detective Watts, I was telling the truth. I left out the part about me being there behind the school because I was scared and didn't want to get into trouble. I decided to go ahead and tell the rest of it because this has been bothering me for too long. On the morning that the lady was killed behind the school, I went jogging with my brother Jesse. He could jog farther than me and I couldn't keep up the pace. I stopped and started walking. Jesse stopped so I could catch up. I saw the Oriental lady walking past Jesse. Jesse said hello and she just nodded. I was several feet away and Jesse grabbed the lady. She tried to get away but couldn't. I said, quote, Jesse, stop. What the fuck's going on? What are you doing? 
I said it several times. Jesse told me to shut up and I asked him again. Jesse told me to get the fuck out of here, just go. I got scared and jumped the fence into the school ground. I ran through the woods and once I hit the blacktop, I slowed down because I was out of breath. I walked a little ways and almost stopped, but I started jogging again and ran to the apartments and went inside. I had to walk over a broken fence at the apartment to get to the building. I went into the apartment for a while. I came back outside. I was there maybe five to six minutes when Jesse came up. It looked like he had been running hard. That's when I saw the blood on his shirt. The shirt he was wearing was my shirt. That's when Jesse told me to call my mom and that he thought he had just killed somebody. He had talked about the oriental woman having a nice button stuff before, but I didn't think anything about it. We had seen her walking around the school a lot. That was it. The day after Jesse slept with Troy's ex-girlfriend, Troy told police that it was Jesse who had killed Kiao Gove. Six days later, Jesse was arrested and held without bond. He has never seen the outside of a jail or prison since that day. For 23 years, Jesse has believed that he was put away for life because his brother was pissed off about him sleeping with his ex and was further enticed by the $10,000 reward that was being offered by Kiao's husband, Kenneth. But just weeks into our investigation, it has become crystal clear that the situation is far more complicated than that. And Jesse sleeping with Shauna was simply the straw that broke the camel's back. As far as Jesse knew, up until just two weeks ago, Troy was the one behind his imprisonment. But as it turns out, Troy was merely a puppet. Very early into my investigation, I had suspected that Jesse's mom, Carol, had been the one pulling the strings very early on. At trial, she testified that her husband, Troy and Jesse's father, had been the one who called Crime Stoppers. She was adamant and repeated a few times that she did not call. Her statements just struck me as odd. Why would she be so insistent to make it clear that she didn't call, yet get on the stand and say things like, I just knew in my heart that it was Jesse who killed that woman. Her testimony provided no direct knowledge of the crime. She was merely put on the stand to bolster Troy's testimony. Furthermore, Jesse and Troy's older sister testified at the trial, and she indicated that she thought that Carol was behind Jesse's arrest. She also stated that she had little relationship with Jesse, Troy, or her parents. She said that Troy was a liar, and Carol and Jay were both alcoholics. Carol hadn't worked in years, and she was living off of disability. Christine went on to testify that Carol always favored Troy. He was her baby. Even as an adult, he spent most of his time at Carol and Jay's house. Her trial testimony makes it clear that Carol hated Jesse and doted on Troy. Through an open records request from the Dallas DA, I was able to obtain a copy of Detective Watts' investigative notes. And there it was, in black and white. The investigation into Jesse began with Carol Eldridge calling Dallas PD requesting for a detective to call her for information about the Gove murder. Watts called Carol, who told him that she should contact her son Troy because he had information about the murder. Watts' notes read as follows. Contacted Carol Eldridge at her request. She said that her son Troy wanted to speak to me. Troy was contacted at his job and said that he had not told me everything regarding the morning of the murder. 
Troy went on to say that on the morning of the murder, Jesse had gone jogging without him. Now, this is in direct conflict with the affidavit that Troy wrote that I just read to you. In his affidavit, he says that he was jogging with Jesse, but here he says that Jesse was jogging without him. Also note that in the statement, Troy told him that he had not told Watts everything regarding the morning of the murder. Watts had been speaking to Troy before this contact, and this contact wasn't made in October, the day Troy wrote the affidavit. This interview took place in February, eight months before the affidavit was written, and Jesse was arrested. So the question becomes, how long ago before this day had they began communicating? Well, we don't know exactly. This is the first note in the report about any communications with the Eldridges. But at trial, Troy testified that he had spoke with Watts on several occasions, sometimes at home, sometimes at work, and sometimes in Watts' office. Watts' testimony also indicates that every time he communicated with Troy, the meeting was set up by his mother, Carol. In a 1998 article in the Dallas Observer, Watts is described as, quote, Around the Dallas Police Department, where he's worked for 25 years, Detective Don Watts is known as a master interrogator. With his penetrating blue eyes and his soft voice, the 54-year-old detective is so good at gaining people's trust and breaking down their defenses, he teaches the art of interrogation at the police academy, end quote. The article says that Watts was first made aware of Jesse's involvement in Keow's murder because of a, quote, anonymous call from a woman stating that her friend has information about her son killing Mrs. Gove. Given the context of the police reports, trial testimony, and this interview with Watts, my personal belief is that the anonymous call wasn't anonymous at all. I believe Carol Eldridge made that first phone call herself. As the article goes on, we find out that it took Watts nearly a year to get Troy to finally write an affidavit. And as it turns out, the affidavit that I read earlier was not Troy's first. Eight months prior to Troy writing the affidavit claiming that he witnessed Jesse grabbing Keow, he first swore out this affidavit written on February 23, 1994. I am giving this statement to D.A. Watts, who has identified himself as a Dallas police officer. My brother is Jesse Eldridge. I was living with him in the apartments across from Spruce High School when the woman was killed. We had been living there for six months. Jesse would always go jogging early in the morning around the school. The morning that the lady was killed, I was supposed to have gone jogging with Jesse around the school, but he didn't wake me up. I don't recall what time I woke up, but it was early in the morning and Jesse was already gone. I messed around the apartment for a couple of minutes and then went out to look for Jesse. I was outside for about 30 minutes. School had not started yet. I saw Jesse on the sidewalk in front of the school. He was walking from the direction of Masters. Jesse walked up to me and said, call your mom. I asked him why and Jesse said, Troy, I think I just killed somebody. Jesse was wearing my white t-shirt that had a part of the sleeves cut off. I know it was my old t-shirt because it had some darkish white paint stains on it from when I had been painting. The t-shirt had blood spatters all over the front of the shirt. It looked fresh because the blood was real red. I know the blood was fresh because I had just washed the shirt the day before. I know the blood wasn't Jesse's blood because Jesse wasn't cut anywhere. I knew Jesse wasn't kidding because any time Jesse got into trouble, he would always say to me, call your mom. 
I called mom and told her to come pick me up. I didn't tell mom what Jesse had told me. I went back upstairs, changed my clothes, and left. I never did see any police cars or ambulances around the school. Jesse left after he told me to call my mom. I don't know where he went. Later that day, my mom told me that a lady had been killed at the school. I saw Jesse later, and he wasn't wearing the t-shirt. I never did get the shirt back or know what happened to it. Jesse told me that he had been with Fritz Flaherty that day. In this first version of Troy's affidavit, he didn't witness the attack at all. He was inside sleeping. And based on the notes, this statement was several versions away from Troy's original story, which was, I don't know anything about the murder. The master interrogator, Don Watts, said this in the Observer article, quote, He and I had got to where we knew each other, Watts says. Finally, he just broke down one day and told me the whole story. He had been with Jesse when he grabbed Mrs. Gove. He was afraid to tell the truth for fear that he too would get in trouble. End quote. The day that Troy just, quote, broke down was the day that Jesse slept with Shauna. But the craziness does not stop there. As it turns out, Troy was originally a suspect. We learn from his sister Christine's trial testimony that her mother Carol had told her that the police were looking at Troy for the murder. We also see evidence of this in the article. Watts says that as time was going on and he was continuing to pressure Troy, he didn't believe what Troy was telling him. This is before Troy had mentioned anything about Jesse. Watts asked Troy to take a polygraph, but Troy refused. Jesse, on the other hand, is a different story. Before trial, you did take a polygraph, right? My attorney made an agreement with the, the DA, Mr. Blackman, and their investigator that uh, we would take a polygraph, and if I passed polygraph, they would start the investigation all over again. And we ended up, I didn't know it at the time, but they, my attorney had hired uh, one of the best polygraph guys in the in the U.S. and I didn't know it at the time, but it was come Eric, to find out, it was Eric Holder, uh, wasn't it? Eric Holder did your polygraph. Eric Holden. Okay. Yes. And then when we after that polygraph, we turned around and we were going to get one by the sheriff's department. And when we showed up, my attorney, me, the investigators, uh, the sheriff's deputy that was going to give me the polygraph, my attorney handed over the. Uh, the polygraph results from Eric Holden and uh, the sheriff's deputy read them, handed it back and started folding up all this stuff, putting stuff away. And the DA Blackman asked him what he was doing. And he said, well, I'm not gonna give him one because the guy that just gave him one is the one that trained and licensed me. He said the, the man didn't do it, he passed. Jesse was issued a polygraph exam by Eric Holden. Holden is known throughout the country as one of the best, if not the best, polygraph examiners in the nation. Holden asked Jesse three questions. Question number one. On July 25th, 1991, were you involved in the stabbing death of Mrs. Gove? Answer, no. Question number two. On July 25th, 1991, did you do any of the stabbing or cutting that caused Mrs. Gove's death? Answer, no. Question number three. Were you physically with Mrs. Gove when she was assaulted and stabbed that morning? Answer, no. In Holden's results, he wrote the following, quote, This examiner's opinion is that Mr. Eldridge is being truthful in those answers. 
end quote. Unfortunately for Jesse, this did not slow down the DA. In order to take Jesse Elder to trial, the prosecutor had to ignore a multitude of other legitimate leads, ignore Troy's changing and conflicting statements, a complete lack of even a single piece of physical evidence tying Jesse to the crime, and on top of that, as it turns out, Kenneth Gove, upon hearing the news of Jesse's arrest, carefully packaged up the keys that had been sitting on a shelf for over three years and mailed them to the DA so that they could be tested for DNA against Jesse. Unfortunately, based on the trial records, that lead was also ignored. We have no record of the keys ever being tested. This tangled web of lies and betrayal goes far deeper than I've been able to get into in this episode. But the basic facts are these. The only evidence whatsoever indicating that Jesse Eldridge committed this murder was the testimony of his brother, Troy. I personally believe the chronology of events occurred as follows. Jesse had nothing to do with Kiao's murder, nor does he know anything about it. Troy also had nothing to do with Kiao's murder, nor does he know anything about it. Three years go by and Troy has multiple contacts with the detectives. He consistently denies any knowledge or involvement. I believe that Troy and Jesse's mother thought she could cash in on the reward money. She had an unnatural controlling relationship with Troy, and she capitalized on that. It's my belief that Carol was driving this train from Jump Street. I think that she called Crime Stoppers, and then she continually pushed Watts to lean on Troy for more information. Troy was reluctant, but when he felt betrayed by his brother, when Jesse slept with Shauna, he drove the final nail into the coffin and framed his brother for murder. To this day, we have no record of who received the reward money. Remember, there were two rewards. The Crime Stoppers reward would have been paid out to the tipster upon indictment, and Kenneth Gove's $10,000 reward was to be paid out upon a conviction. The only two people who testified against Jesse at his very short trial were Troy and Carol Eldridge. This tragic tale reminds me of the biblical story of Judas. Our audience spans far and wide around the globe, and as a whole, we are an incredibly diverse group. While our collective makeup spans across many different faiths and religions, most are at least familiar with the story of Judas Iscariot. As the story goes, Judas was one of Jesus' closest disciples. They lived together, they ate together, and they prayed together. Judas loved Jesus. But despite his deep affection for Jesus, Judas sold out his brother in faith to be condemned for 30 pieces of silver. The parallels here are bone-chilling. The only way that we are going to find out the truth about what Troy Eldridge really knows is to confront him, in person, face-to-face, man-to-man. And that is exactly what I'm about to do. getting on a plane to fly back to Dallas to try to track down Troy Eldridge. 
If you'd like to follow along during the trip, you can follow me on Snapchat, of all places. My Snapchat handle is Bob Ruff Truth. And typically, I'm just goofing around on Snapchat. But this week during the trip, I'm going to be snapping along the way to keep you all informed of what's going on. So check out my story on Snapchat at Bob Ruff Truth. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. All of the music for this episode was created and scored by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Also, thank you to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can find all of the case documents for every episode. I also want to thank our transcription team, Sarah Hoyt, Sarah Mueller, and Desiree Dunn for transcribing all of the episodes and mailing them out each week to Jesse. And I also want to thank all of you for all of your engagement and support. It truly is all of you who are driving this movement. And as a special note, this week we will not be doing a call-in segment for the Friday follow-up because I'll be out of town. But what you can do is call our phone number, 269-224-2833, and leave us a voicemail between now and Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time to leave your questions. And we'll answer your voicemail questions this week live on the air. You can also send your thoughts, theories, and ideas to our email address, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can keep up to date from our Facebook page, or join the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page group to engage in discussion with other listeners. To follow along with what I'm doing, I am the most active on Twitter, at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.